Well, good morning once again. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I haven't seen you since, uh, since Christmas and, uh, and the new year, so we want to say a belated Merry Christmas to you. And from our family to yours, uh, Happy New Year and a blessed new year uh, to you this year of 2016, the year of our Lord. As we begin a, another year, um, I, I think that I, I can start to believe and, and understand what uh, my parents and some uh, people older than me used to say, how quickly time goes and how quickly a new year is upon us once again. And uh, surely that, that feels like that for me again uh, this year. Our, our son Owen was born December 30th of, of 2014, and uh, now he's uh, a year old already, and it just seems surprising and kind of impossible that we're already already to another year. But as we begin a, another year, it is a, a great time uh, for us to reflect, uh, for us to evaluate, for us to plan, uh, to think through the, the necessary or desired changes in our lives. And this morning, what we want to do is pause and consider uh, what is of first importance. If I were to ask you to list, yeah, in order uh, for you, the things of, of greatest importance in your life, what might that look like for you? You can just kind of think about that for yourself. Maybe three or, or five things that, that might be of, of greatest importance in your life. For many of us, or, or all of us, th- there are many priorities in our life, um, whether that be a spouse, or taking care of parents, or if you're a child, your parents, or, or children, or school and education, or your work, or your employees, or church, or finances, or friends, or your walk with Jesus, or your grandkids, and the always apropos health. Right? These, are, these are always things that are kind of pressing in on us, that are, that are vying or competing for our attention and our devotion. And at the turn of every year, we often take time to consider what is the most important things and what should we be getting back to or begin to do. Truly, there are many things that are important to us all. Yet today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find out that Paul calls something as of first importance. Follow along. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Yet he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. The first couple verses here, Paul is setting up a, a, a talk or a, um, a teaching on, on the resurrection, 
most of you who, who know this, this chapter may know that, that most of this chapter is about the resurrection, a large portion of it. We're only looking shortly at the first 11 verses this morning. Uh, but in the first two verses here, he, he kind of sets that up, and he kind of gives it a little bit of an introduction to what he's talking about. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What is he reminding them of the gospel? And we're going to talk a little bit about more about the gospel in, in a few minutes as he kind of gives greater detail. But for now, the gospel is the work of Christ by dying as the perfect payment for the sins of the world. Right? That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was the perfect payment for the sin of the world. And he is reminding the brothers, the, the Christians, about the gospel. Now, for some of us, that may seem strange. Why is he reminding Christians about the gospel? Isn't the gospel for the non-Christians? Isn't the gospel the thing that we tell people they must believe in order to be saved? Yes, it is that. But he's reminding them of the gospel because, like Martin Luther has said, I preach the gospel each week and every week because each and every week people forget it. They forget it. Now, what, what does he mean? Does he mean they intellectually cannot remember the gospel seven days later? No, that's not what he means. He means they forget it practically. He means they forget the implications of the gospel into our everyday life. And they relegate it only to a momentary decision that I made at a point in time. See, the gospel is actually for sinners and for saints. It's for both. And so Paul is reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them. And then he tells them about the response to the gospel. The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Three things. The proper response to the gospel is that we receive it. You must believe the gospel in order to be saved. It's not good enough just to know the gospel. There are people who may think they know the gospel, meaning intellectually, cognitively, they could tell you the gospel is the good news about what Jesus did. Maybe they could tell you that, but that doesn't mean they believe that. The gospel must be received. It must be embraced. It must be brought in by faith alone. The gospel of John is written for the express purpose that people would believe. John chapter 20, verse 21, that's why it was written, that people would believe, not just know, but believe. Secondly, he says, not only that you receive it, but in which you stand. This tells us the gospel is not only a belief, but it is a source of strength. We stand in the gospel. It is our, our strength. It is our foundation. It, it holds us up. Thirdly, by which you are being saved. Now, for some of us, that might feel weird for that phrase to be there, being saved. Our church believes, and rightly so, that once you are saved, you are always saved. Meaning that when I trust Jesus as my Savior, Jesus saves me. Amen? 
Amen. Jesus saves me. I don't save myself, right? So in, in one sense, what we do understand about the totality of Scripture is that when we are saved, we are saved eternally. That Jesus saves us. And a, a temporary salvation would say something not about my faith. It would say something about Jesus' salvation, right? So we believe that there is eternal salvation for the one who believes. And yet Paul is saying, by which you are being saved. I think his point is to communicate that the gospel not only saves, but it also keeps us. It keeps us. In one sense, we're saved at one point in time, it's secured. Yet in another sense, we can understand that it is the work of Jesus that keeps us saved. We're being saved. He is keeping us until the day when we meet him. It's not our good works that keep us saved. It is, it is his work in us. Now, he does give two qualifiers here. He says, if you hold fast, if you hold fast to the word that I preach, unless you believed in vain. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he only that endureth to the end shall be saved. So how can, how can I endure? How will you endure? Well, you'll, you'll endure because of, of Jesus, not because of you. Your endurance isn't based on your strength of faith, but in the object of your faith. Those are two very, very different things. Your endurance is not based on how great your faith is, but how great your Savior is. Unless you believe in vain, what is he saying? He's saying that there may be some who have a worthless, empty, futile faith. It's not real. We would look upon that and say that that's a false profession of faith. They didn't really understand it. They didn't really need it. In either case, whether it's, it's uh, not holding fast or whether believing in vain, these are false professions because we know John 10 tells us that God keeps those who are truly His. Paul moves on to tell us about the content of, of the gospel. What is the gospel? For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. He's calling them to receive the gospel in the first two verses. And he's saying, I have received this gospel too, and now I'm delivering it to you as of first importance. This is big, big stuff. This is a big deal. This is important. It is primary that you understand it. What is that first importance? It is the gospel. Some believe that the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15 contain, quote, contain the earliest known specimen of what may be called the creed of the early church. And those are found in verses 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared... Um, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. These are the elements of the gospel message. The first is that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That is a powerful statement. It carries massive implications for each and every one of us. Christ. Who is Christ? It's Jesus more than just Jesus as a person. It's Christ the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? The Son of God. Who's the Son of God? God himself. 
Christ. We just celebrated Christmas. Christ came, incarnation, became a man to do what? To die. Christ, God, died for, in my place, on my behalf. For what? Sin. Our sin. Christ died for our sin. This tells us about who the Savior is. It tells us about what he did, how he did it, why he did it, and for whom he did it, you and me, in our sin condition. It's the first element of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins. If you don't believe you're a sinner, you don't think you need a Savior. The first step in anyone coming to understand Jesus is to first, if you want to get anyone saved, you must first get them lost. So the first element of, of the gospel is to say, listen, Jesus came because you're lost. I'm lost. And Jesus came for us. Second element we see is that he was buried. Literally, truly, physically, he died. Life gone out of his body. And he was taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb in a literal sense. And on the third day, he was raised, literally raised from the dead. He came physically as a baby. He died truly as a human, and he was raised to life. He ascended to the Father, and one day he is coming back literally, physically, to receive us to himself. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. He rose again is, is, our, is our third element. Fourth is that this was all according to the Scriptures. Right? Verses 3 and 4, according to the Scriptures. This is God's plan. God's plan was for Jesus to die. This is not plan B. This is God's plan that his Savior would rescue his people. God planned that. It came as according to God's scriptures, according to the scriptures. And fifthly, that he appeared. Paul, Paul makes a certain and great emphasis about the appearance of Jesus. In verses 4, 5, and 6, 5, 6, and 7, he talks about who he appeared to, who, who, who saw Jesus. And we're going to take a lot of time with this, but the point that Paul was making here is that these were real people. And for the Corinthian believers, these were people they could go talk to. There was 500 at once, most of whom are still alive, he's saying to them. Why is he saying that? He's saying, because if you want to go talk to them, go talk to them. They'll tell you. They'll tell you that they saw Jesus. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. That's the content of the gospel, in a nutshell. Paul doesn't stop there with just telling us about the content of the gospel. He goes on to tell us about the effects of the gospel. And he does that by personal testimony. He tells us that this is of, of, of first importance. And why is it of such importance? Why is the gospel of such importance to both the sinner and the saint? Well, we understand this about the gospel, that the gospel, what Jesus has done, definitely has implications on our past. Right? Most of us would clearly understand that. 
that Jesus forgives our sins. That's the past. Most of us understand that the gospel has implications on our future, our, our hope, our heaven. Right? So, so we understand the gospel as, as past implication and future implication, yet many of us do not understand or do not give enough weight and emphasis to the here and the now. And Paul Tripp, writer Paul Tripp, calls this the gospel gap. And what he means by that is that there's a neglect uh, of recognizing the benefits and the effects of the gospel on present life. Yes, the gospel forgives my sins. Amen. Yes, the gospel guarantees me the hope of heaven. Amen. But the gospel isn't only for those two ends of the spectrum. The gospel is for now. The work of Jesus actually affects me now. It doesn't just cover behind me and give me a bright future to look forward to. It affects every day now. The gospel is vital because it speaks to our past, yes, and to our future, but also to our present. It saves and it keeps and it sanctifies. It's not only about the future life eternally, it's about our life now. We do not move on from the work of Jesus in order to become more like Jesus. We don't move on from the gospel in order to grow as a Christian. No, quite the opposite. The gospel actually informs us of how it looks to live like Jesus. One writer says this, The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A through Z. The gospel encompasses all of it. What does it mean, though, for the gospel to, to have impact into my, my, my daily life? Sometimes you might, you might hear that or, or hear someone say that. And they go, okay, well, what does that mean? I understand that it forgives my sin. I understand it gives me eternal life. But what does it mean for the gospel to have impact on my present life? We mean that it affects literally everything. It affects everything you do. See, in the very next section, Paul gives a personal testimony of the transforming power of the gospel. When he says this, last of all, talking about um, Jesus appearing, uh, last of all, as, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And when was that? Acts chapter 8 and 9, right? When, when the conversion of, the, of Saul, then Saul, now the apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus was confronted with, with Jesus. The bright light. You might remember that story. He's blinded. That's Jesus. That's when Paul became an apostle because he witnessed or saw Jesus. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. You see, Paul is writing to tell believers that the work of Jesus, the gospel, is the gospel of grace that changed him. It changed his life. And there was evidence. Uh, Paul wasn't one of these people who said, I'm a Christian, and there was no evidence of such a thing. You looked at Paul's life, and there was a radical change. And even here in these verses, 
Paul communicates what that evidence looked like. It looked like humility. It looked like a spirit of humility. As he looks at his life and says, I'm the least. I'm unworthy. It looks like honesty. It looks like honesty about our past sin. Because he is, I, I persecuted the church of God. But it also looks like dependence. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. The gospel is the gospel of grace. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to talk about the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection. But what if the resurrection of Christ were not true? Thus making the, the entire gospel untrue. Paul actually asks that question in verse 12. He actually says that. What if Christ did not raise, was not risen from from the dead? What then? And then he goes on to the next number of of verses to tell us the the drastic and damning consequences of such a belief. What would those be? Verse 13, there would be no resurrection of the dead. You're dead, you're dead, period. It's over. Our preaching would be in vain. Any proclamation of the Bible would be irrelevant. We would still be in our sins, verse 17. There's no hope. There's no hope of salvation. There's no hope of cleansing. Verse 18, the dead have perished, gone, no hope. Verse 19, Christians would be the most pitiable, most miserable. They're living this life hoping to to see Jesus one day, and Jesus is dead. It would be terrible. Keep going, and we could see the implications that that death would be victorious. And there would be no motive for life at all. And yet, verse 20 says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Good news, it's true. It's true. You don't have to wonder about whether or not it's true. It is true. The whole thing is true. Milton Vincent wrote a little book called The Gospel Primer, and he says of his own testimony, when he heard the gospel, he says, the gospel is the craziest thing I've ever heard, and it's true. It's true. Imagine it. Imagine God become man to save man, to die on a cross, to be buried, rise again, (laughs) ascend to the Father, offer to all humanity the gift of new life. This is the craziest thing you've ever heard. And it's true. It's true, friends. Christ did die. He was buried, and he rose again. Now, because of what Christ has done, death is swallowed up, and there is victory in Jesus. If you kept reading in 1 Corinthians 15, you could read verses 50 through 57, and you would read that. That, that where, oh, oh, death, where is your, your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. The gospel is true. So, how shall we then live? If it's true, and it is, what does that mean? What does that mean for today? What does that mean for you, even even in your life right now? What does the work of Jesus mean? What does it mean to your marriage? What does 
Jesus giving himself for those that he loved yet did not love him yet, how, how would that affect the way you handle your marriage? Or parenting, this long-suffering father, that's what we find out about who God is, this long-suffering father who deals with disobedient, rebellious children and continues to welcome them as he did the prodigal. How does that affect the way you parent, whether you have children at home, whether you have adult children, or whether you have grandchildren, how does that affect the way you parent? Or your neighbors, how does the gospel affect the way you, you care for your neighbors? The second greatest command, right? The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Or your enemies. What, what did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they they do. We can look at those enemies and say, man, those were really bad. But guess who else is in the list of enemy? You are. I am. The Bible actually refers to us that, that we were once God's enemy, and yet Jesus still came. Why we were still in our sins. How's the gospel affect the way that we deal with our friendships? We find out that Jesus was a friend to sinners. You read the New Testament, Jesus spent time with unbelievers. He cared for them. He loved them. Proverbs tells us that he was a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We could keep going. You could add other categories or other ideas of, of how the gospel affects the way you do your schoolwork or your education or the way you, you do your work, the way that you treat people, the way you, you handle relationships in your life, your, your finances, your health. You can keep on going and see how the gospel has impact into all of these areas. Paul is presenting the gospel as of first importance. It, it, it's primary. It's supreme. So, so what do we say? Well, we say the, the, the words of, of the, the classic lyrics from the band Journey in 1981. Keep on believing, right? Don't stop. Keep on believing. Don't stop believing. The gospel is not only the prayer that you prayed when you were five. That's not all the gospel is. Do not relegate it to some past moment in time. It is that, but it's not only that. Yes, it's what saves. Praise the Lord, it saves. And if you're here with us today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know the gospel saves. The gospel saves. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, which at some point in time is everyone. But it's not only that. It is the source of our strength. It is what keeps us until the day of our redemption it, it is what sanctifies us, conforms us to be more like Jesus. You see, it's the work of Jesus that rescues us from hell, motivates us to holiness. Never get over the gospel. Never get over the gospel. It is of first importance. And my question is simply this. Is it of first importance in your life? And if so, how so? How would, that, how would there be any evidence of that? in your life. How could someone look at you and say, well, it's, it's, it's the heart that matters. Right. Well, you know, we demonstrate what's in our heart by how we act and how we live and how we love and how we give. So you might claim to understand the gospel, but it is demonstrated by how you live. Where's the evidence? If you do not see the gospel as of first importance, 
I would ask you, why not? What, what possibly, what possibly is of greater importance? If you've never received the gospel, hear the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Behold, now is the favorable or acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus. If you know Jesus, follow Jesus. Father, we are thankful for the work of Jesus. We're thankful that the Apostle Paul saw fit to highlight the work of Jesus in a, in a clear and concise fashion by telling us how important it actually is. We are prone to forget. We are prone to be so overburdened and over have too many other issues in our life to, to see the importance of the gospel. We can become blind to it. God, help us to give proper attention. God, I would pray that it might be of first importance in my life, even today and in this year. And I pray that for each one here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. You have a Bible, you can flip back just a couple chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we have 